In Exodus 34, Moses beholds the glory of God. And it is my conviction, my belief, and it is not a crazy one, that this morning, by going through this text, we too can behold the glory of God. Behold, according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, means to perceive through sight or apprehension. So, in one sense of the word, uh, it can be used simply to describe seeing or looking at something. So, uh, a child who is asked by their parents after they return home from school, uh, what they did that day could use the word behold in this sense. Mom, dad, today I beheld a number two pencil. Now, that sounds a little bit odd, but if you think about it, if they spent their whole day, and I hope this, this doesn't happen, hope my kids aren't doing this at school, if they spent their day looking at a number two pencil, just staring at their number two, that would be a, a possible way to use the word behold. They spent their day beholding a number two pencil. Another way that we can use behold in this sense would be is if, if we were to watch a championship sumo wrestling match uh, that, that is featuring, and I googled this, the, the world champion, the current world champion, he's, he's amazing record. I don't know, I've never seen him with my own eyes, but uh, his name is Yakuho Sho. If you were to watch a sumo wrestling match with, with this man in it, you could say that you beheld this six foot four, 346 pound champion as you watched him battle in the rink or ring or whatever it's called. But in both these instances, it would seem like an odd choice to use the word behold. The reason being that the word behold has more depth to it. It, it has some, some intimacy to it that sounds odd when we're using with a number two pencil or a sumo wrestling champion. I think the second part of the Merriam-Webster de- definition gets at this sense, this deeper sense of the word behold. It refers to apprehension. To behold is to perceive through sight or apprehension. This apprehending is not the type of apprehending that a police officer will do with a criminal when they capture them. This is the, the type of apprehending that happens when you are standing on the beach in front of the ocean and your eyes are open and you're looking at and seeing the power and the, and the beauty and the greatness of what you're looking at in the ocean. You're, you're just amazed. That's the type of apprehending we're talking about with behold. Or it's the type of apprehending that happens when, when you think about your best friend or maybe your spouse. They apprehend you. They get you more than other people get you. That's what we're meaning or I'm meaning with the word behold. This is what I mean when I say that in Exodus 34, Moses beheld the glory of God. Not that he beheld the glory of God like you would a number two pencil or a sumo wrestler, but in, in the type of way that somebody would behold the ocean or behold their best friend or their spouse. That's what we're getting at with the word behold. And it's important because I'm going to use this word a whole lot in this sermon that you get what I mean with behold. Moses beheld God's glory in the sense that he saw the bigness and the power and the beauty and the character of God. He was given in chapter 34 of Exodus a greater understanding of who God is. He was made more aware of God and his character and his attributes, who he is. Because of what takes place in Exodus 34, Moses knew God better. If you remember from last week, that's what he was praying for. I want to know your ways, God. Reveal your glory to me. 
And that's what happens when he beheld God's glory. He knew God's ways better, and he saw who God is better than he did before. Now, before we look at how it is that Moses beholds God's glory, we need to try to define God's glory. And in my notes, try is in italics because I want to emphasize try. Now, I have some analogies in here, some of them better than others, and this is the one that I've come up with trying to define God's glory. What is it like? One of my tasks as the, the man of the household is to carry in the groceries. And my goal is to carry all of the groceries in, in one trip, all right? And, and as I was thinking about this task that I have in carrying the groceries, I was thinking about the task that it is to define God's glory, What it's like is if a semi-truck pulled up into my driveway with a year's worth of groceries. It would be like me trying to define God's glory. It's like me trying to carry as much as I can of those groceries, my one-year supply of groceries in that semi-truck into the house. Now, I can carry a bunch. Now, I got a skill, I got to tell you. I'm not trying to brag or anything. I can carry almost a whole car load. Almost, I can. I can do it. It's amazing. My fingers are going to be crazy looking soon, but I can do it. I couldn't do it. I couldn't carry a year's worth of groceries from that semi-truck in one trip into my house. And I cannot fully define God's glory for you this morning, but that does not mean I should not try. A sentence will not do when we're talking about the glory of God. A paragraph will not do. A hundred sermons will not do. Our whole lives will not do for us to try and wrap our minds around the fullness of the glory of God. It will take all of eternity. And brother or sister in Christ, that's what we will do for all of eternity. It will not get boring. It will not go, get old. It will be sweet and wonderful. I mean, think about it. I was talking with a brother in Christ after last week's worship, and we were talking about how everything has an end date. Like, okay, even the service, some of you know, it ends at this time. It might end a little bit later this morning. Uh, your, your meals, even if it's really good, like you want to get away from the table eventually. You know, like everything has an end date basking and enjoying and experiencing the glory of God will not have an end date for us. We cannot wrap our minds around even just that part, and that's not even the glory. Just that it has no end. And so here it is, my attempt to try and give you some definition of the glory of God. I'm going to start with the verse, Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. This is not a definition, this is a picture. I'm trying to paint a picture in your head, a small little picture, maybe like those, I forgot what they're called, but those little kid, you know, things where you, you put the pictures in, then you click the button. This is just one click on the button. The heavens declare, what's that called? Anybody know? What is it? Viewmaster. All right, it's like a viewmaster. I'm giving you just one little viewmaster click here. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. God's glory is so big and so amazing that the heavens, that is all that we see above us, everything that we look at when we open our eyes and we see what is out there, the colors, the, the sunsets, the sunrises, the blues and the purples and the and I, green sometimes and the grays and, and I'm forgetting some of the awesome colors, oranges. It all is saying God is glorious. The stars, the moon, the sun, it is, all, it is all telling us of the glory of God, that God is glorious. It is shouting, God is glorious to us. That's what the scriptures tell us. But why? Well, the second half of this verse explains the why and why the heavens are declaring the glory of God. It's because God made them. They are his handiwork. The sky has a testimony, the scripture tells us. You and I have a testimony for Christians. 
Mine involves Campus Crusade, hearing the gospel, plain, simple gospel message, a message that I'd heard for years and years, and yet in that time, God's sovereign grace met my crazy, sinful life and saved me. He saved me in that, that meeting at some point. You have a testimony. The skies have a testimony. God is glorious. That's what this verse is telling us. The sky is declaring, is shouting to us, he is glorious, he is mighty, he is beautiful, and he is the creator. That's the first little click on the viewmaster. Revelation 21, 22 through 25. Here's another one. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Well, this passage describes God's glory to us as a bright and sustaining light, a light that shines brighter than the sun and is stronger than anything else we have experienced on this earth. It is a light that is uncreated. It is brilliant, and God's glory is so bright, warm, and good. God has to explain things in ways that we can understand, wrap our minds around. That's what he's doing in this passage, John's vision of what the end will be like for the believer. That's, that's what's happening. Well, God's glory is so bright and warm and good that after Jesus Christ returns and he makes all things new, the new heavens and the, the new earth, there will be no need for the sun or the moon because God's glory will light up the world. It will sustain us. Right now, sun goes out of existence. We're done. In the new heaven and earth, the sun will no longer exist because the glory of God will be there and will sustain us. It will keep us warm. It will be our light. It will shine forth. Uh, hitting upon this in his definition in his systematic theology book, Wayne Grudem, this is a book that we have used often in our uh, Sunday school classes, uh, I, in our adult Sunday school classes. Maybe someday we'll use it in our in our child's Sunday school classes. But if you know Wayne Grudem's systematic, it's a pretty big book. But this is the, the definition that Wayne Grudem gives, and it hits on this light aspect of God's glory. He says, God's glory is the created brightness that surrounds God's revelation of himself. God's glory is the created brightness that surrounds God's revelation of himself. Then Grudem goes on to state that God's glory is not an attribute of God. This is important for you to understand. It's not God himself, but it is what is emanating. It is what is flowing out of God. It is, and this is what he says after he gives that definition. Grudem says this, it is the outward expression of God's own excellence. It is what we capture of God when we behold him. One more verse, Isaiah 6.3. It records what the prophet Isaiah heard the angels saying around the throne of God. Isaiah is a prophet. He's given this vision and he hears these things and this is what he hears the angels saying around the throne of God. The seraphim say this. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, the holiness of God refers to his being set apart, that he is in his own category. He's not in just another category, though. He's in a category that is all by himself and that is above every other category. He is in a class all by himself. That's what God's holiness is, is about. It refers to his total perfection, his superior greatness, his purity, his sinlessness, his infinite worth above everyone and everything. 
God is like no other. He cannot be improved upon. He cannot be tied. And as we just sang in the song before the reading of the word, he cannot be beaten because he always wins. This is our God. This is who he is. And his holiness has to do with all of these things. One word, so much in it. But you might be asking, I thought we were looking at God's glory and not his holiness, but now I'm pointing you to a verse that has a lot to say about his holiness. Well, here's the connection. In Isaiah 6-3, after the seraphim repeat that God is holy three times, they announce not that the whole earth is full of his holiness, but that the whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Here's the connection between God's holiness and God's glory, and this will help you understand God's glory. God's glory is the demonstration to us of his holiness. He is holy, and as we understand that, and as he displays that to us, and we behold that, well, that's his glory. John Piper has put it this way. God's glory is the going public of his holiness. I like that. That, that helps me understand God's glory better. God's glory is the going public of his holiness. It is the way he puts his holiness on display for people to apprehend. To apprehend. you see that word again? So, Apprehend. I'm going to take John Piper's definition, not because I want to improve upon it, but I just want to tweak it for this sermon and use a word that, that I have been using and will use again. Behold. So here's John Piper's definition with the word behold in it, and I want to end with this definition. It is the final click on the Viewmaster. God's glory is the way God puts his holiness on display for people to behold. That's what God's glory is. That's one sentence, can't do it. Just try to carry some bags in, but hopefully this helps you to wrap your mind a little bit this morning or to remind you of God's glory. With these definitions and scriptures in place in our minds, I want to ask and then answer another question. This is the, the second question that I think we need to ask when we consider how God revealed his glory to Moses. How did he do it? How did God reveal his glory? To say it another way, How did Moses behold God's glory? Well, first, God revealed his glory visually to Moses. He displayed who he was in a way that Moses' own eyes could behold the veiled glory of God. Now, this happened in this morning's text, Exodus 34, but we were given the details in Exodus 33, and I just want to read those details again from the passage. Moses said, this is Exodus 33, 18 through 23, Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So the first way that Moses beholds God's glory is visually. Now this is an awesome display of God's glory, one that is unique to Moses. This is not the normal. This is not normative for us believers. Second, God revealed his glory to Moses, and Moses beheld God's glory by what God said to Moses, by his word. It was God's word that made God known to Moses. I know I'm saying God's word often here, but it's important. I want to hit that point hard this morning. Revealing God's character, his nature, and allowing Moses to better understand who God 
is came through God's word. As much as we might be amazed at the thought of beholding God's glory with our eyes like Moses, it was what Moses heard from God that most revealed his glory to Moses. Most revealed his glory. And the same brothers and sisters, friends, is true for us today. We know God because he has revealed who he is to us through his word. Now you may have you may have first heard the gospel through somebody who didn't have a, a Bible opened. Maybe they memorized some scripture. Maybe they paraphrased from scripture. But whatever truth was given to you and whatever was enough for you to, to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus came to you because God has revealed it to that person and to his church and to sinners through his word. God began proclaiming his word to Moses first by announcing his name. He said, the Lord, the Lord. This is what it means. I am, I am. I am, I am. That's what Moses heard. He heard God's name, Yahweh the Lord. I am is here. I am is here. And by saying his name, God was telling Moses again that the self-existent one, the one who is the creator and sustainer of all that exists, was with him right there, right then, was with him, was present with Moses. He is the one who is, who is and who has created all and is over all. Now, I like sports. I would say that God has graciously, thankfully, sanctified uh, my view of sports. They are no longer my greatest treasure. They are a fun thing. They can help us learn various qualities and help us be disciplined, but man, they are such an idol in our culture. <laughs> well, I have an analogy related to sports that I hope to, to point us to what God does here in announcing his name to Moses. When you go to a sporting event, and I'll just pick a baseball game, before that, that batter comes up to, to the bat, they announce his name. And if it happens to be your home team, and if it happens to be one of the stars of the team, and your team is losing, when that name gets announced, a certain sense starts to well up in you. We got a chance. If this guy can get on base, or if this guy can hit a home run, then we're right in this thing. When the Lord was announcing his name to Moses, that's what was going on in Moses' heart. That's what, what a believer, when you hear the name of the Lord, and not just audibly, but again, you behold the, just the name of the Lord, you know that you have hope. You know that there is a chance, and not just a chance, but a confidence that you're going to make it, that this is going to end well. It might, might be hard, might not be how you want it to go, but, but the Lord, the Lord, he is here, he is with you. The Lord announced his name to Moses, telling Moses, I am is here, the one who needs nothing, and is God overall, he is here right now with you. Then the Lord begins to define who he is. He tells Moses of his attributes, and, and remember, God is all that he is perfectly. Now, we might define people we love certain ways. Uh, my wife is beautiful, she is caring, she is kind, she is giving, she is sacrificial, all of these things. But in comparison to God, it, it, it's, there is no comparison. Who God is, is all of that he is perfectly. Like we, we, oh, this person is the most caring person. You don't know caring unless you know how caring God is. And so when we look at these qualities, we're being given them perfectly in the glory of God. And this is what Moses is, is hearing from God. And brothers and sisters, he beholds God's glory because he hears these things about God. And, and so I want you to hear these things about God and, and, and think about them. 
And I pray that God will help you behold his glory as you do. The first thing that the Lord says is that he is merciful, meaning that he is compassionate and does not give his people what they deserve because of their sin. God cares about his people. Oh, sometimes we doubt it. How can, how can I be going through this right now? How can this have happened? How can, oh, but God says, child, I am compassionate. I am merciful. This is who I am. God is concerned and kind-hearted towards his people. Friends, we need God to be compassionate towards us. And if you look at the ministry of Jesus Christ, his earthly ministry, one of the things that, well, all of the attributes of God mark his ministry, his life, but, but think about the compassion of Christ. He sees a crowd in, in need of food, and he provides it. He sees people who are desperately crying out to him in faith, and he forgives their sins. He announces their sin is forgiven. He sees people who, who desperately want to be healed, not just to be healed, but because they, they want to experience life, and he blesses them. And so when we see Jesus, we see compassion because Jesus is God, and our God is merciful. The next thing that the Lord announces about himself is that he is gracious. This means he gives to his people what they, what they do not deserve. That is, his unmerited favor. Here God tells Moses that he is gracious. And oh, Christians, we know that God is gracious. The gospel screams to us, grace, grace, God is gracious to you. You had a one-way ticket to hell. You were born with it and you earned it too. You're going there happily. Maybe you were in a Christian family hearing the gospel, deceived, thinking just because you were born in a Christian family, you were saved and you're going to heaven. That's not how it happens. You've got to trust in Christ for yourself. And, and as you were going your way, loving your sin, whether it was just living for your own glory and fame and people saying you're a great kid or if it was you were all in, you're a drunkard and chasing after you know, sex and all, all the things of this world, money, whatever it was, and then you met Jesus. And he poured out his grace on you. And no longer do you have a one-way ticket to hell. That's been, that's been ripped up to shreds. It's gone. And he has purchased you a seat forever secured in heaven. You know that God is gracious. And here God is announcing his grace to Moses. And we know that this grace is true because of the gospel. The gospel teaches us that it is not by our works, but by faith in Christ that we are saved. We have been saved because of God's grace. The next thing that the Lord announces is that he is slow to anger, meaning God is patient. He is a patient God, perfectly patient. Moses knew this to be true. Look at his own life. I mean, he, he was speaking with God in the burning bush, and he was unwilling to do what God had called him to do. Yet God was patient with him. He didn't want to talk to Pharaoh, and so God was patient, and he gave him Aaron to help him and give him some confidence. Look at the life of Israel. Moses sees this. The, the, people, the people are rebellious and they are stiff-necked. God provides salvation from slavery in Egypt, brings them out miraculously. They pass through the sea. It's parted. Amazing things happen and they complain and they grumble. And God was patient with them. He provides the water from the rock. He provides manna and quail from, from heaven. He feeds them and he cares for them like a, a perfect father does even if his children are not perfect. And they were not perfect. And, they, and over and over again, Moses and the people see the patience of God. They deserve to be destroyed when they worshiped at the foot of a golden calf. They turned in the worship of the uncreated God for a worship of a created thing that Aaron had made. They should have been smited right there, ripped up. 
And God did not rip them up. He was patient. He judged the wicked who would not repent, but he was patient with those who needed to be brought to, repent, to repentance. Have we not experienced this too? I can be so impatient with my family, with the church, with myself. And over and over again, we see in the scriptures that God is a patient God. Brothers, sisters, struggling with your sanctification? Rejoice! Not that you're still struggling with your sanctification, but that God is patient. He will not leave you in that sin. He is working you through it. He's bringing people into your life. He's bringing the scriptures forth as you read them, as you hear them read to you, as you hear them preached. And he is a patient God, slow to anger. Next, the Lord announces that he abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. This speaks of the covenantal love that God has for his people. God is loyal. We are disloyal. God is loyal. God always follows through. His faithful love is boundless. How would we describe Israel's love for God? <laughs> Wayward. It is marked by abounding in waywardness and unfaithfulness. But God was and is a covenant-keeping God. And despite their sin, because of God's love and faithfulness, he renewed the covenant with them. And not only that, but he promised a greater covenant. He promised the new covenant. And church, in the new covenant, God has again revealed even more his steadfast love and faithfulness to us. As we open the pages of scripture, we see his progressive glory being revealed to us over and over again. Hey, I will crush the head of the serpent with one of the seed of, of the womb of Eve. I will, I will be with you and I will bless you. Awesome, awesome, awesome. All these things ramping up, ramping up to reveal the glory of God. And then Jesus, in steps Jesus. Here he comes. And we see the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. We see the glory of God. Romans 8, 38 and 39. This is what we have in the new covenant, church. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sweet, wonderful words from God through Paul to us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what? That includes you and me. Nothing. You're part of nothing. <laughs> You're part of that class. You're part of that group. Not that you are nothing, but you, you cannot separate us yourself. You cannot separate your own self from the love of God in Christ Jesus because he has brought you into the new covenant. It is a, a covenant that is guaranteed by the blood of Christ. The Lord is also forgiving, he says to Moses. God is a God who forgives the sins of those who repent and turn to him. Moses had cried out, Lord, please forgive the people's sins. And God says, I am a forgiving God and I will forgive their sins. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Throughout the scriptures, God reveals himself as a forgiving God. God forgives because that is his nature. He is a forgiving God. And because of the work of Jesus Christ, all who trust in him are forgiven of their sin. Our guilt, brothers and sisters, has been taken off our shoulders and has been put on Christ's shoulders and he bore it and he bears it because of the cross. Because God is a forgiving God. He sent his son for us. And finally, the, the Lord says that he is just. And this summarizes the rest of what he says about himself. This summarizes, summarizes what is meant by God saying that he will by no means clear the guilty. And this is how it all fits. Those who reject his mercy, 
Those who reject his grace, those who reject his patience, those who reject his love, his steadfast love and faithfulness, those who reject his forgiveness will only have left his justice. And so he will be just to those who refuse to behold his glory, who have not beheld his glory, who will not repent and trust in him. This language about God visiting the iniquity on future generations does not mean that grandchildren will be punished for something their grandparents did, but that where unrepentant sin continues, God's justice will continue. And the sad reality is that children often see the sins of their parents and they repeat them. Not always, praise God. Gospel's stronger than genetics, stronger than, than what happens in the household. We are not most ultimately defined by our last name, but by Christ's name. Praise God for that. But there is this, this thing that happens. I am prone often to falling into the sins that I saw my parents and my grandparents exposed to and fall into. In this way, sin is like a cold. Those who have it often pass it on to their loved ones. You get it. You're around it. Unless you have the gospel and it frees you from it. Now, it can be hard for us to reconcile God's mercy and his grace and his patience and his love and his forgiveness with his justice. But there is a place where we, and we look there all the time, every Sunday, and hopefully every day, where we can see all of these attributes of God meeting perfectly, and that place is the cross. At the cross, God poured out his justice on his son, and in pouring out his justice, his wrath against our sin, God poured out at the same time his grace to us, his mercy. We will not get what we, we deserve because Christ took what we deserve. And instead, we will get what he has earned and what he deserves. God is gracious because of the cross. God proves his steadfast love. He will not abandon his people. He will rescue them. The cross has demonstrated that and proves it over and over again. Either Jesus took your judgment at the cross or you will face God's judgment on your own. God is merciful and gracious, patient, loving, forgiving, and just. And by apprehending these attributes of God, Moses beheld the glory of God. God revealed his glory to Moses by his word. So here's that reminder, church. God continues to reveal his glory to us by his word, the Bible. And through the scriptures, we behold the Christ of the Bible. Everything else is secondary or tertiary or whatever comes after tertiary, all right? When you behold the glory of God, most it is through the scriptures. That is the place that God has spoken and continues to speak. All right? It's not in Facebook. And I know you can make some arguments. Yes, if the scripture's there, you might behold it. It's not in fantasy football. It's not in, um, you know, keeping up with what's going on in Hollywood. It's not in a movie. It's not in uh, all of the other things. It's not even in other people, unless it's God's word going forth to you. If you are a Christian, the reason that you are a Christian is, be, is because God has revealed his son to you through his word and by faith you have beheld Christ. To be, to be a Christian is to behold Christ. You have to behold him. God's word has revealed to you the ultimate and permanent expression of his glory, Jesus Christ. In Matthew 17, that, you know, Moses, remember, and I mentioned this last week, Moses did not behold the glory of God as we do until after he died. And we see even in Matthew 17, the transfiguration, 
a time where finally Moses got to see the, the glory of God in a way that he had not before, in a fuller way. When on the, mount of, on the mountain, when, when Jesus is transfigured and, and reveals his glory and he shines forth and Elijah and Moses are there, Moses gets to see God's glory in the way that we get to see God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful, beautiful picture. For Christ is who God's word says he is. And what does God's word say about Christ? John 1.14, that he is the word in flesh. He is the word made flesh dwelling among us. And if we have beheld Christ, then we have seen God's glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I talk to believers and they're looking for more experiences. I love experiences. But they are not going to give you more than what God has already revealed to you in his word. Rest on the truths of scriptures, of the scriptures, not on what some person saw after they died. That has nothing. It's just guessing. It's not maybe even true. It might even, some of these stories might even deceive you. They will not help you behold the glory of God. They may help you behold heaven wrongly because they point you to who's there besides Jesus. No, behold the glory of God by beholding the scriptures. This is why, church, we read and we study and we teach and we preach and we memorize the Bible as a church. This is why we do it. It is God's word to us. This is why we have Sunday school classes that teach systematic theology, that dig into what it means to be a Christian parent, and they use the word, not just guessing, not Oprah, not Dr. Phil, but what God has said to us in his word, because that is how we behold the glory of God. We teach God's scripture because we want to behold God's word, or we want to behold God's glory, and we do that with his word. That's why we, we study the scriptures. As Jesus said in John 5, 39, the scriptures bear witness about him. They bring us to Jesus. The scriptures testify that Jesus is Lord and Savior, and he is glorious. So if you long to know God more, if you desire to behold his glory, then pick up the scriptures. Pick up your Bible. Read God's word. Hear it preached and enjoy God's word. And there is where you will behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And you know what? Here's the hard part. It takes work. You gotta gotta get off Facebook for a while. You might have to put the kids to sleep a little bit earlier. You might have to stay up a little bit later. You might have to put down the remote control or the, the, the video game controller. Not might, you will have to. And you will have to pick up the scriptures and read and enjoy them and behold the glory of God in Christ. You might have to join a community group. You might have to go to a, Bible, a, a Sunday school class or a Bible study. You might have to go to the men's group or the women's group and spend your Wednesday night or your Tuesday night doing something else besides sitting at home and watching football or the gymnastics that you love or whatever. But you know what you will get if you do? You will get the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And, and what's going to happen when you behold God's glory? Uh, it, it, selfishly, the question could be asked, what will I get out of it? What is the fruit? That's the, maybe the biblical way to, to say it. What is the fruit of beholding God's glory? And you should want these things. This is good to want the, the fruit of, of beholding God's glory. And three things. First, beholding God's glory gives assurance. What is assurance? It is confidence that our sins are truly forgiven and that our place in heaven is forever secured. 
The reason that beholding God's glory produces assurance, and you should, you should desire assurance, is because the one who is beholding God's glory, what are they beholding? God. When you are beholding the glory of God, you will find your assurance. So often we look inward to find our assurance, our confidence. We, we look back to our conversion. That's, a, that's, that's second or third to look at. You need to have a conversion, not maybe a moment, but no, yes, I repented and trusted in Jesus. But where you need to look is to God. You need to know the one who is gracious and merciful and, and has provided you with salvation in his son. Assurance comes not by first looking inward, but by looking at God, the author of your salvation and the keeper of your soul. Now we can see this connection even in Exodus 4 to assurance and beholding God's glory. Remember, what was Moses praying for? What was he desiring? What gave him confidence that God had truly forgiven the people's sins and was going to go with them for the rest of the way to the promised land? It was the glory of God. It was as he beheld the glory of God, well, that's when Moses knew for sure that God was going to be with him. When God revealed his glory and Moses beheld God's glory, well then, that's when Moses had assurance. God said he would do it, and now he was proving that he would do it by being with Moses and revealing his glory. The London Baptist Confession of Faith from 1689. Some of you may say, Baptists are that old? Yes, Baptists are that old. The London Baptist Confession of Faith from 1689. I've been using it in my devotions. It's rich, it's sweet, it stretches my vocabulary. Well, it says this about assurance. This certainty, speaking of assurance, this certainty is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded on fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. It is saying, you who want and so desire assurance, you need to look to the gospel. You need to look to where God has revealed his glory to you, and that is in Christ. Now, it's wordy, but it is meaty, and it is good. And it says this, heaven, the, the assurance that you're looking for, that you have heaven, is not found in your feelings or your experiences. It's not even in you convincing yourself. It's not positive thinking. I'm a believer. I'm a believer. I'm a believer. You can say that to yourself all day long, but you cannot find assurance in that like you can find it in looking at the cross. Not looking inside, but looking outside is how we find and we are given our insurance. Believer, if you are a Christian who is doubting, struggling with sin, and feeling far from God, wondering if you are even really saved. I mean, you look at your life, you look at the sins that you're still struggling with, and you're thinking, man, I read the Bible and it tells me that I have a new heart, and yet sometimes I want these things, and I'm struggling here, and I'm not looking like Jesus to my family or my coworkers. Oh, and you're sitting on that today? And I think there's definitely, I know there's people in here in that place. It's, it's not, I say normal in the sense like it's a normal thing to experience in the Christian life. Well, you must look to Christ. You must look to him today at who he is and what he has done. Not what you have done and who you are. You need to behold again the glory of God. And that is where you will find your assurance. But here's the thing. This takes work again. This takes effort. This takes trial. You're going to have to wrestle and fight and think and read and pray. And you're going to need the Spirit's help. And if you do that, if you are willing to fight for your assurance, now if you're a Christian, you're saved, but you don't always experience assurance. But if you're longing for assurance, and you should be longing for assurance if you don't have it, then you must do these things. 
You must look to Christ, not to yourself. Uh, one of my favorite books, I mention it a lot, is The Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan writes this story about uh, a man who is living in the city of destruction. He's, he knows he's going to be destroyed. He's hopeless. And then a man named Evangelist, the names are for what they describe of each person. A man, come, a man named Evangelist comes to the city of destruction. He tells him the gospel. He says, you must leave the city of destruction and you must, you must go this way. You must go to Christ. And, and in John Bunyan's story, he, he talks about how Christian, the main character, he got saved as soon as he entered into the, 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 the kingdom of God by going through the narrow way, the sheep's gate. So Christian became a Christian then, but he did not experience his assurance of salvation until he came to the cross, until he, he climbed the hill of Calvary and he beheld the glory of God in, in Christ. That's when he experienced his assurance. It, it, he was carrying this burden, his whole life he was carrying this burden like we do before we're saved. The burden of sin. The burden of, of his damnation, knowing that he was going to hell. And he gets saved and he's still wrestling with that. And along the way, there's people that come into his life and they try to point him other ways to remove the burden. And he gets sidetracked. But then God leads him to the cross. And at the cross, his burden rolls off his back, goes into a tomb, and is swallowed up. And he's removed of that lack of assurance. Still got to fight for it for the rest of the story, but he has it at the cross. The same is true for us, brothers. We experience our assurance at the cross by beholding the glory of God. Beholding God's glory also does this. It leads to worship. What did Moses do after he beheld the glory of God? It's, it's wonderful. Verse 8 tells us that Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Because Moses saw and understood the beauty and splendor and the greatness of God, he worshiped God. When we understand who God is and what God has accomplished in his gospel and what he promises to us in Jesus Christ, well, what's that going to lead to? Worship. We were made to worship. That's why we were created, to, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that means worship him. When we understand the gospel, when we behold God's glory, we're going to worship him. What we find most captivating, most amazing, most worthy, we will worship. We will spend our life. We will spend our money. We will do that. That's why you can tell where somebody's God is. It's where they spend all their money, where they spend all their time, where they spend all their resources. They put that to that idol, that God. And if we are truly beholding God's glory, well then, we will worship. We'll worship God. You know why? Because we see him as the most worthy object of our worship. We treasure him. We have seen his glory. We have beheld his glory. We want to behold his glory. And so we worship him. Think about the glory right now. Ponder it. It's maybe some of the things that I've said, maybe, maybe things that you've thought about as you think about the glory of God. Think about his mercy to you. Think about his grace to you. Think about how he has loved you so perfectly in sending his son. Think about his patience in your life. Think about his His forgiveness of your sins. Think about his justice, which you have experienced in a different way because of the cross. What is conjuring up in your heart? If you're a believer, some level of worship, you want to say, yes, I want to praise his name. I want to live my life for his glory. Maybe you're struggling to worship, but at some level, as you behold the glory of God, as you think about who he is, what's going to happen? Worship. You're going to worship awe, joy, peace, and worship flow out of meditating on and thinking about who God is. Worship is the byproduct of beholding God's glory. And we were made to worship. And so let's behold his glory. Here's the last one. Beholding God's glory changes us. 
In Exodus 34, beholding God's glory caused Moses to physically change. His appearance physically changed. He started to shine. I mean, he started to glow, so much so that he put a veil over his face. Well, today, beholding God's glory in Christ won't make our faces shine like Moses's, but beholding God's glory will very much change us. It's going to change us. What brings a dead sinner to life? It is when they, when they see Jesus rightly. When they say, wow, he did that for me? Wow. They're beholding the glory of God, and they become a Christian. What brings a dead sinner to life? Beholding Christ. Looking at and seeing Jesus and by faith grabbing hold of him. What frees a man or woman from the worship of idols? The glory of God. What causes a person to hear the gospel called to count it all as lost? To say, Jesus is better than all of it. I'm in. I believe. They have to first behold the glory of God. You're not going after nothing. You've got to see and encounter and know that Christ is who he says he is. God and Savior. We must see what the heavens are declaring, church. We must know that the God who is and has revealed himself in his word is glorious, that he is merciful and gracious and patient and loving, forgiving and just. Beholding God's glory is going to change us. It already has. If you're a Christian, think about your life. Think about your life. You are different. You're here on Sunday morning. Hearing the word preached, you are different. You're not doing some of the things that you would be doing if you had not met Christ. But there's something else in, in, as far as changing. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Church, as we behold the glory of the Lord, the Holy Spirit is working in us, changing us, transforming us. He is making us more like Jesus. That is what is happening as we behold. So do you want to be like Jesus? Yes? Then behold God and his glory in Christ. God made us in his, perf- in his image to, to reflect his glory, and he has saved us. He has saved us to testify to his glory. He has saved you, brother, sister in Christ, so that you would be a public display of his grace and his mercy and his love to the nations. Beholding God's glory gives us assurance. It will lead us to worship and it will change us. So let's close by praying that God would help us to behold his glory today. Father in heaven, what an amazing thing you did when you revealed your glory to Moses. We stand in awe and wonder that you revealed your glory in such a powerful way. But as Christians, we bow in even more wonder in how you have revealed your glory to us in your Son, in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would remove the scales, that you would, you would strip them away, that you would scrub them off the eyes who do not yet behold your glory. Father, we pray that you would give ears that are plugged up, deaf, unable to hear your word, the ability to hear the truth about who you are. And we pray that hearts would come alive as they behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.